1: What were some of the major transformations taking place for Muslim communities in the Russian Empire of the 18th century? How did the introduction of a state-backed structure for Muslim religious institutions alter Islamic authority in the empire? And who was Abu Nasr Qursawi and what was his reformist project to grapple with this situation? These are some of the questions asked by Nathan Spanis in his book, Preserving Islamic Tradition, Abu Nasr Qursawi and the Beginnings of Modern Reformism. Welcome to New Books and Middle East Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts and your host for our program today. Nathan Spanis is a specialist in Islamic intellectual history and religious thought. He is a graduate of McGill's Institute of Islamic Studies in Harvard's Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. He has also held positions at Princeton and Oxford. His work has appeared in Islamic Law and Society, Muslim World, Arabica, and Journal of the Economic and Social History of the Orient. He has also contributed to the Oxford Handbook of Islamic Theology, the Encyclopedia of Islam, and the two-volume Modern Islamic Authority and Social Change. He is currently a postdoc researcher in Islamic philosophy at the University of Juvaskula, Finland. Without further ado, we welcome Nathan Spanis to our show today. Welcome, Nathan.
2: Thanks, it's great to be here.
1: Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you, and as I'm sure you know, uh, part of our tradition here at the, you know, at the New Books Network, our taklid, so to say, is to start by inviting authors to share a little bit about themselves for us. So we'd be very curious to know what your story is and what, what brought you to writing a book on Islamic reformism in 18th century Russia.
2: Well, I studied Russian literature as an undergraduate, and I was living in St. Petersburg, And in St. Petersburg, as a very prominent part of the skyline in the city, is the Central Mosque, which is very beautiful and very large. Um, At the time, I thought it was very old, but it turns out it's not. But I I became very curious um, about this mosque, largely because it didn't fit with my idea at the time of what... Muslims in Europe or European Islam was. Um, And so this led me to uh, dive into the history of Islam in Russia, which turned out to be a much larger and much deeper topic than I expected. And I very quickly learned about Kursawi. He's a very prominent person among the Muslim communities of Russia, particularly in Tatarstan. And he he has a very um prominent position in their own history and after quickly becoming aware of him i quickly became um very curious about the historical portrayal of him which as i detail in the book is quite at odds with what he was actually about and so that led to you know this in-depth investigation into um what he tried to do and what was going on at the time.
1: You know, I, I, I'm, you know as I was looking through the catalog of, of, of new books in the field and when I, when I, when I came across this, um, it really struck me and I, and I found it to be very necessary. And, when, you know, one of the reasons why I got in touch with you is because, it, you know, the subject occupies, uh, you know, a, a space and time that many of us who are in Middle East and Islamic studies are very unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. Um and to start I was wondering if you could provide us with sort of a broad historical scope of the spatial and temporal terrain that we're working with um because when typically when we think you know Islamic modern Islamic reform or reformism in the 18th and 19th century you know we look to the Middle East or we look to South Asia um you know Muslim Egypt or Muslim I- India are are two two prime candidates but we don't really think about Russia and what you know what was going on there and so before we actually talk about you know Kursa, we, uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about what did Islam in 18th century Russia even look like? Well,
2: it's important to keep in mind as, as sort of a, a background note for all of this um, the real significance that the Soviet period has had on how we understand I mean basically anything involving Russia but particularly Russian Islam um, because it's very common now to exclude these Muslim communities from the broader Ummah or the Islamic world. And that wasn't really the case prior to the Soviet period. Um, While these are obviously peripheral communities, they were generally considered, I mean, they certainly considered themselves, but broadly within the Muslim world, they were considered part of the Muslim world. So in, you know, Abbasid era, Geography texts, there's mentions of these communities as part of the Muslim community. Um, And it's important to note that they go back, in fact, to the Abbasid period. Um, The conversion of the Kingdom of Bulgar, which is on the middle Volga today, south of the current city of Kazan, um, converted to Islam around the year 900. Um, So Islam actually predates Christianity within the territory of Russia.
1: That really the, challenges a lot of our, a lot, a lot of our, our, our historical understandings of uh, even, even prior to modernity. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Certainly. Um, and so does the, the historical relationship, not only between Muslims and Russians in this territory, um, but also between um these sort of more peripheral parts of the Islamic world and the more central parts. Um, Though geographically very distant, um, uh, Kazan is, especially in pre-modern times, pretty accessible to the center of the Islamic world. The Volga River um, flows directly into the Caspian Sea. And so uh, trade and transmission between uh, certainly northern Iran and Central Asia and these parts of um, what we generally call Inner Eurasia, um, I mean, certainly long predates the the 10th century and was really important in spreading Islam and different parts of Persianate culture. Um, I should say, just as a slight aside, um, when I use the term Russian here, I, I'm signaling ethnic Russians, not sort of citizens of Russia. Which is a distinction that exists in Russian but not in English.
1: Um. So, if I can, if I can ask, um, within the actual the actual community in the in the you know, the, the, the Bulgar Muslims um, uh, in the eighteenth and eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, how what was their relationship? To the state and how how did it change? What were there were there? I know you you, you write you write in depth um, about the the, the complex uh, you know contestation uh, of religious authority that, that that and the negotiation that took place between the, the between the ulama and and the state. Um, can you can you can you elaborate a little bit on that?
2: Sure. So these communities were conquered by. Russia by, by Muscovy um, in the 16th century, in, beginning in 1552 and basically lasting until the 1590s. Um, the, basically, the whole of Inner Eurasia was conquered by Russia, including these large numbers of Muslims. But as far as we can tell, the initial conquest didn't change a whole lot about the day-to-day for these societies. There wasn't a push to convert the local populations. Um, And there also the the Russian state at the time was not particularly powerful or centralized. And so there was a lot of variation from locality to locality, which allowed Muslims the space to pretty much go on their day to day lives as they had been previously. And in fact, there are. a fairly significant number of muslim military elites who switch sides after the conquest and they continue to hold elite status and remain muslims. In the 17th century the russian state particularly among particularly under the romanov dynasty really pushes for more centralized power there is now a formal push to convert the landholding elites to Christianity, although not the vast majority of the population. That leads to most of the elites either losing elite status or converting to Christianity. And in the 18th century, this, this story really begins to change. Under the reign of Peter the Great, in the beginning of the century, there is this real push for state power. And this push for state power is... Across the board. So it involves a takeover of the Russian Orthodox Church by the imperial government, making it officially subordinate to governmental institutions. And that was driven by a recognition by Peter and the imperial court that the Orthodox Church was really the only institution that had direct contact with the mass of the population. Russia is obviously very large, and it has a very rural population at the time. And so the only way to effectively govern and administer most of its subjects is through the church. And that really drives why uh, Peter takes the church under direct control. That doesn't work for non-Christians, of which there were a significant number, not just Muslims, but also Jews and in parts of Asia, Buddhists. And so there comes a push to convert everyone in the empire to Orthodox Christianity. Um, And this involves, particularly at the very turn of the 18th century, focusing on the ulama and their role within Muslim communities. And so there it really becomes the first time that the government really focuses on scholars as people at first to be sidelined um, for their role in sort of maintaining Islam and resisting conversion. This, there were various um, openly oppressive measures placed on um, ulama and mosques and madrasas in the very beginning of the 18th century that lead to small scale uprisings among Muslims. But really in the 1740s, there is a very dedicated push to force Muslims to convert. So there were arrests of scholars, the burning of huge proportion of the mosques around the empire. Um, The Children were taken away from Muslim parents. Uh, the Muslim population of Kazan was kicked out of what had been their neighborhood since the 16th century and forced outside of the city walls and really very openly um, antagonistic and repressive measures that are remembered among the Muslim communities at least until the 20th century um, as being really a really horrible time for them. It's not successful, by and large. The number of converts is pretty tiny and is seen as uh, very superficial, and these projects are abandoned um, in the 1750s. The reign of Catherine the Great, who comes to power in 1762, brings an entirely new attitude. There is still this push for state centralization, but there's an understanding that Russian subjects don't have to be Christians to be good subjects. And in fact, it's in the government's best interest to work with these communities, these non Christian communities, to basically make them more productive and loyal subjects. And that leads to a series of measures that both offer a degree of tolerance and acceptance to Muslims and also brings them into the imperial bureaucracy as Muslims.
1: So it seemed, it seemed that the, the agenda was more, they, they sort of tweaked their agenda. Rather, rather than suppressing it entirely, they, the, the Russian authorities decided to regulate it um, through bureaucratic uh, mechanisms. Would that be accurate?
2: Yes, that that would be totally accurate. And it, this isn't merely in terms of religion. Um, so Russian society was organized around a series of legal estates. So a person and their descendants' legal status was determined by the estate. So peasants, townspeople, merchants, nobility, um, were; those were the leading categories. And Muslims were by rule, only peasants or townspeople prior to um, the 1770s. And it's at that point that they are allowed into the merchant estate, which brings actually really considerable prosperity to a lot of these communities, especially in urban centers, and small numbers are admitted to the nobility. And that stands with their sort of socio-legal Economic status. And then, in terms of their religious status, in 1788, there is the establishment of the Spiritual Assembly of Mohammedan Law, which is in large part modeled on the Orthodox Synod, which was the governing structure for the Orthodox Church established in the 1720s under Peter the Great. And so they are given an uh, analogous institution. That allows the state to really manage their religious affairs and in turn, the ulama are brought into a similar role as the Orthodox clergy, wherein they become responsible for governing the, um, large rural Muslim
1: population. And this seems to basically set the stage for, for Qursawi coming onto the scene, right? The star of our show, um, so let, let, let's talk about let's talk about him now. Who was you know who was Abu Nasr-Khursawi? Um what was his central mission? What was his legal epistemology? It it seems that he wasn't really uh very happy with these developments. Um and he 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 made it a point now to 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 tackle specific uh concepts within Islamic legal thought, such as taqlid and ijtihad, uh and redefine and reinterpret them. So uh, how did how did he come onto this scene and what was his and brought in broad strokes before we move into the details? What was what was his uh, uh agenda, so to say?
2: Well, it's important to point out that his agenda wasn't strictly legal. Obviously, law forms a large part of his reformist project, but I would argue that his reformist project is not specific to law or theology or any of the other Uh, scholastic fields of Islamic thought. I would argue that theology is a greater concern for him. It certainly takes up a larger proportion of his writings, but he has an overarching uh, attitude towards Islamic scholarship that is, is really based in a distrust and a degree of hostility towards his fellow ulama, And he's quite critical and openly antagonistic towards many of his fellow scholars, who he sees as essentially dropping the ball in their role as upholders of normative Islamic knowledge. So, to did, give did he or- view
1: them as comprom- like, almost like compromising by, by sort of integrating themselves within the state structures? We
2: don't know. That's a, it's a very um, interesting question. His writings, I think, are really interesting in that there is virtually no mention of Russia or Russians. Interesting. You can compare him with his contemporary opponent, Abdurrahim Utizimani, who was very open in his hostility towards the Russian state and Russian society. He makes no... Um, he, 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 there's no ambiguity into how he feels about the spiritual assembly, particularly, but also Ulama that he sees as compromising with um, Russian society. Whereas Kursawi doesn't at all. And there's a degree, I think, to which his attitude toward fellow scholars is based in part on a reformist outlook towards the Islamic scholarly tradition and its history in the post-classical period as a whole. And we can see that in his debates in Bukhara, which was not under Russian rule at the time and was not subject to these same strictures. In fact, research by um, Alfred Bustanov, who's at the European University of St. Petersburg, has found texts written by Bulgar scholars who have moved to Central Asia, um, including people that we know were associates of Kursawi, who Use their position outside the empire to critique ulama practices within the empire. But we don't see Kursawi engaging in this in Bukhara, and we also see him being openly hostile towards ulama in Bukhara. So it's not merely an issue of compromise or of the co opting of scholars by the Russian state. However, We also have no indication from the text from Bukhara that he engaged in his discussion of Ijtihad while in the Emirate. And so that is uh, one of the reasons that I argue that his position on Ijtihad is, in fact, directly related to the takeover of Islamic institutions by the Russian state. But a lot of that is implied. I think in his criticisms of fellow scholars, it's not he's not explicit about it, which I find fascinating and sometimes frustrating.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting character because he also, as you mentioned, he he didn't he didn't you know target the ulama based on a, a single uh, scholastic discipline within Islam, but he he also he also made it. It seems that he made it a point. Um, you know, to to take a multifaceted approach towards um, the what whatever happened to be the the normative or orthodox quote unquote uh, interpretations at the time, and to the point where he actually earned the ire and the condemnation of the ulama in, in Bukhara, specifically his critique of after his critique of their the theological uh, points. So, I'm really curious, you know, and I'm, as, as I'm sure are our listeners, what, what was his critique of the traditionally established uh, theological position of these ulama? Why was it significant, and how does it speak broadly to the uh, theological discourses of, of the time?
2: Well, his position essentially, and this applies to both theology and law, is that accepting positions that come from scholars of earlier generations is not necessarily a guarantee of correctness in those positions. And so he has a very strict understanding of epistemological status, we can say, of different kinds of religious discourses, where something that is a source that is so widespread as to be beyond doubt um, as we would find in verses of the Quran and certain Hadith those have the absolute highest status so anything that has that status we can accept as true in terms of its religious validity but when we talk about the formulations of scholars particularly those who are engaged in different arguments among each other those positions don't have that nearly the same level of certainty behind them. And those are merely opinions that should be treated as merely opinions. They may be right, they may be wrong, but we can't assume that they're correct. And that includes, you know, another scholar who you are in a debate with in a mosque, just as it includes someone as revered as Abu Hanifa. Nothing that Abu Hanifa says has the status of scripture.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today, that's Shopify.com/slash-system.
1: Now, I, I'm curious to you know where where you would situate uh, Kursawi within the the wider Islamic intellectual uh, tradition of the time, because um, I get the sense that he uh, he was almost very Salafi in his approach. Um, to you know to hadith and two texts and to to his interpretation but i I know that word itself is is very loaded and has different meanings in different contexts um so I'm curious to know uh, if you if you were to pinpoint him or situate him in in, in, in the wider field of Islamic intellectual thought uh, of the time where 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 would we situate him if we want to integrate him into um you know the middle you know his his Middle Eastern contemporaries or his South Asian contemporaries or his West African contemporaries um, at the same time?
2: That's a really interesting question um, because he, I wouldn't say he fits certainly with the, the popular understanding of what a Salafi is. Um, He himself says that he's following the method of of the Salaf. So he thought he was, Um, but for instance, in terms of Hadith, he doesn't engage in the kind of Hadith-centric reformism we associate, certainly with contemporary Salafism, but also with contemporary figures like um, Muhammad Shalkani in Yemen, or Sha'u in South Asia, or Ahmed bin Idris in North Africa, all of whom, particularly Shalkani and Ibn Idris, really focus on Hadith as a way of getting around scholarly structures that they disagree with. Um, but Khursawi doesn't do that. He he has criticisms of these same scholarly structures, but in terms of Hadith, he's 100% within the Hanafi mainstream in views of Hadith in ways that Shalqani would consider illegitimate, in fact. And at the same time, he articulates in many ways using the same kind of language, the same critiques as Shawkani and Wali Allah regarding the history and the historical trajectory of the scholarly tradition, especially since the 13th or 14th centuries. And so, in terms of positioning him, to answer your question, I think he has to be seen as. A peer of these contemporary, what are considered the characteristic eighteenth-century reformers, by people like Vol and Dalal, mm-hmm. but I think we have to broaden our idea of what reform in this period comprised, um, because certainly with a lot of the extant literature, extant secondary mm-hmm. literature, on. Um, these reformers and reformist movements um, theology is largely excluded, which certainly is a mischaracterization for Kursawi. Um, and also this focus on Hadith as sort of the main avenue for reform doesn't include Kursawi, despite the similarities he has with these other figures. So I think one that you could call him a Salafi we have to understand that the definition of Salafi as used I, I, certainly in the 18th century um, probably needs to be broadened. Um, for someone like Khursawi, who, who would consider himself in this Salafi mold, I don't think he would object to learning that someone is calling him a Salafi. Um, for him, that would include people like uh, Imam Maturidi would count as a Salaf that he is explicitly following. It would include, you know, um, Umar Anasafi. Um, you know, these figures do a very closely attached to the theological tradition, um, but also Baha'i Din Nakshaband, He would consider him a Salaf that he is following. And so it would have to include forms of Sufism. Um, and to exclude these forms of Islamic knowledge and forms of Islamic piety that contemporary Salafis do, I think, does an injustice to um, earlier figures for whom the term had a very different application and a different history.
1: I want, I want to take the discussion to uh, modernity now, Um, because Kursawi seems to have left behind quite a legacy and, you know, as, as your book is dedicated to unearthing and even uh combating as it concerns the popular popular perceptions of him, I'm curious what were some of the major developments that took place post Kursawi how were they received and how was he remembered and and you know as you mentioned earlier in the in the interview that you know you're seeking to um shift uh, some of the- per- popular perceptions and so I'm curious to know like what that looked like after, you know, what what those looked like after his time. Well,
2: the the main historical memory of Kurasawi is of a reformer who rejects the authority of the ulama and calls on Muslims to approach Quran and Sunnah as rational, free-thinking individuals to come up with their own understanding of the religion. And this portrayal becomes popularized in the early 20th century, especially in the 1920s. And it becomes the official portrayal within Soviet historiography and really very much continues to today. It's also quite wrong. (laughs) Um, He, despite his criticisms of his fellow scholars and his critiques of the scholarly tradition is very much within the scholarly tradition and argues his reform as a way to, as the title says, to preserve the scholarly tradition. Um, This was not something that he was attempting to do away with. His position on Ijtihad, however, has this radical bent where he argues that ijtihad is an obligation upon all Muslims, depending on their knowledge and ability. And that gets used as the the sort of proof text that he was pushing this individualistic, free-thinking mode of approaching scripture. And one of the reasons I say that this is entirely wrong is that that's certainly not what he was doing. It, it He would not have fit any definition of free thinking or rational, um, at, at least in a 20th century sense. Because when he says that ijtihad is obligatory upon all Muslims, what he means is engaging in usul al is obligatory among all Muslims. And so this didn't mean that any literate person can just go to the Quran and then come up with their own sense of what they should and shouldn't do. It means that every literate person should learn Hanafific and then apply that to various questions about determining what they should and shouldn't do. And those are, I think, very different things. But in the 20th century, um, especially during the, Revolutionary period, which begins in Russia in 1905, um, there's a very different historical context at work. And at that time, for a lot of Muslims, the idea of studying Hanafi fiqh was not seen as particularly necessary to be considered an educated person. And in fact, for many would be seen as a detriment to becoming an educated person. And for them, studying things like the natural sciences or European languages, um, those would be the really useful things to becoming educated. And so we have very different ideas of what literacy and education mean in this period and very little regard for things like the classical Hanafi tradition as a source of religious legitimacy. And so a handful, a very small handful of some of his statements really taken only from one text, his Irshad Lilibad, which is the one he goes into detail about Ijtihad, really get taken out of context and then repeated over and over again as justification for this historical portrayal, which is quite wrong. Um, but for instance, um many secondary sources have said that he attacked the study of Kalam in Bukhara. And that's why he was condemned for heresy and leaving aside any mention of the divine attributes, which is the heart of his condemnation. But as an issue, that's not something that matters in the 20th century to people. And so, um, especially those pushing this, um, very European centric reformism. And so that gets ignored entirely or mischaracterized. Um, But the issue of modernity, I think, is a really interesting one, because if we take a very narrow definition of modernity as what, from, say, a a post-colonial perspective would be kind of Eurocentric adaption or adoption of different Western forms and approaches to an Islamic or a sort of non-Western population, um, then he's, he's definitely not modern. And this casting of him in a early 20th century modernist way is wrong. But as I argue in the book, if we take a different view of modernity, that views it instead of culturally specific and often problematic Eurocentric ways, but views it instead as a broad historical context, one that I think really characterizes much of the world since 1800 or so, then we can see um, particularly some of his more radical positions as forms of modernism if in an Islamic discursive framework. And that's what I argue in part of the book, that the state takeover of Islamic institutions really constitutes a societal shift um, among the Muslim communities of the Russian Empire that not only marginalizes and undermines their religious institutions, but really reorients their society toward Russian society, Russian imperial society, that is functionally for them secular, in that it has no relationship to their religious morality. And in that way, Muslims as individuals are really divorced from their previously predominant social institutions. And are left their own devices religiously and morally and socially speaking. And in such a context, the individual becomes the, the main unit of religiosity and religious thought. And so Kursawi, focusing his understanding of Ijtihad on the individual. I think, really reflects that changed context. And in the same way, his contemporary Utizimani, who I mentioned earlier, who was very much against Russian rule, he also takes a radical position um, in favor of Taklid that also focuses on the individual to the exclusion of the ulama. And I think that both of these, though very much opposed to each other, are equally An understanding of a society that has been altered in a real significant degree, and that the individual becomes now the main focus for Islamic normativity and religiosity. But as Muslim scholars, they articulate this within the discourses of the Islamic scholarly tradition, because that's what's not only available to them, but that's how the Lama and the Muslim community understand themselves and their place in the world, and so you get, you know, these these very, I would say, characteristic uh, approaches to the religion and religious thought that I, I don't think would make sense a hundred or two hundred years earlier. They really are characteristic of that period and the changes that are going on at the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century, which is part of modernity.
1: It seems that he was, he was, he and his contemporaries were, um, trying to strike a balance by, you know, between fidelity to the historical tradition and also, um, you know, creative reinterpretation that may diverge from what preceded them. Um, and that, that's the sense that I get from, 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 from his, uh, from your from your writing on Kursawi, is that he was he was neither entirely you know he didn't he didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater sort he didn't he didn't throw out the entire tradition um but he, at the same time he didn't he didn't really want um to or at least in fact he probably even couldn't even if he wanted to uh you know replicate its its forms um in from from non modern or pre-modern uh Spatial and temporal contexts.
2: I think that's true. Yeah. And it's interesting um, that we can't really speak much of his successors who carry on this project beyond the small number of followers he had during his life. And then Shahabuddin Marjani, who is this major, major figure who lives in the middle of the 19th century. But even Marjani really starts to um, not deviate because that makes it seem like I'm judging, but he 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 abandons some aspects of Kurosawi's reform project. Um, and, and I think he probably considered it unfeasible. But really after Marjani, there's no one who continues this because Kotosawi is so indebted to ways of thinking that are part of the scholarly tradition. But by the end of the 19th century, the scholarly tradition is really falling apart. Um, There is a a case, I I don't believe I mentioned this in the book, but um, there's a major figure, uh, Mohammedjan Borudi, who was a student of Marjani's and he becomes a major uh, ulama leader in the early 20th century. And he has his own madrasa in Kazan, which is one of the largest and his students in 1904, 1905 stage a walkout because he kept teaching them kalam and they just got <laughs> tired of it. <laughs> and it's stuff like that where by 1905, and this is becomes apparent with the revolution and the loosening on press restrictions in that year, you start to have, even among uh, Boruti's own student body, you start to have explicitly Marxist, journals published by madrasa students and in that context going on about the importance of understanding you know hanafi usulu texts from the 10th and 11th centuries doesn't motivate anyone no one no one's buying that anymore and so it, it becomes a very different historical setting to argue the things that Kursawi does just a century century earlier, because by that point it it doesn't have the relevance it had. And for people who would insist upon learning Hanafi usul, um, by the 20th century, that becomes a very conspicuous kind of position to take. And one that becomes in itself very controversial. And so his, his Kursawi's reformist project, it, it, it seems it's definitely a unique from the perspective of 21st century Islamic studies. Um, But I think it's also, it's a bit idiosyncratic for the time. And I think we can see the ways that um, him, Utizimani and their third main opponent, um, Fadullah Uruwi, they all take different approaches to making sense of this new context and they all remain Important Utizimani, to a lesser degree, gets remembered in the Marxist literature as another radical reformer. Um, but Urui is far more important broadly than either of them in the first half of the 20th century, and he is forgotten entirely. Um, I'm sorry, I missed one. Far more important for the first half of the 19th century, and he gets in, forgotten entirely by the early 20th century. because. The things that they cared about, the divine attributes, you know, Hanafi Thek, those things really stopped being important. And as I argue, they were arguing, the three of them were arguing within the scholarly tradition in the early 19th century. By the 20th century, the arguments now are about the scholarly tradition. And those more focused and specific debates about different religious issues get thrown out in favor of debates about just what it is to be a Muslim, whether it's important to be a Muslim, and are, are really supplanted by other debates about national identity and cultural orientation and stuff that wouldn't have made sense in the 19th century.
1: So i i guess as a as a parting question because you've left us with a lot to chew on and 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 you've kind of um you know shown us that there there there's a lot of work to do in the in this particular arena mm-hmm. um you know just to follow up from from everything that you've written so as a parting question i I'd, I'd love to know what you're you're currently working on at the moment if you intend on expanding on this project or are there are other future projects that you have in store for us that we can look I forward am- to.
2: I am interested in expanding this. I, I want to look more at the the different forms of Islamic reformism that pop up in the early nineteenth century through this um, this theoretical framework that I attempt to develop for understanding modernity and modernism in the book, um, and and just to say in light of debates within the field of Islamic studies that I am I am firmly on the side of we need to expand our methodological toolbox regarding different <laughs> approaches and that this just the text ma'am approach, right. it, it should not be a point of pride for the field. Um, And so I, I'm attempting to do that in ways that's more comparative. Um, I, I certainly don't want my, uh, my analysis of Kurosawa's thought to be seen as this, you know, very weird, marginal thing that was happening in this, you know, tiny, insignificant periphery of the Islamic world. Because I think there are a lot of um, insights we can glean from certainly Khursawi's example that can then be applied to, um, as I mentioned, his 18th century contemporaries to understand a lot of the internal dynamics of the scholarly tradition and understand, especially around 1800, what, is going on globally and how that affects what, what I think comes to be the abandonment of large forms or large elements of the scholarly tradition around the world. Um, and so I'm interested in looking at that. And then similarly, my, my pet project is combining different forms of Islamic thought and philosophy and combining that with forms of radical leftist, political thought and ways we can make sense of the current global environment um in in certain islamic ways
1: well you've you've given us a lot to chew on professor Um, there's very clearly a lot more research that needs to be done uh, in this particular arena and so as a parting question we'd all be really curious to know what you're currently working on at the moment um, if you intend on expanding this project, or if there are other projects you, you you're 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 working on, um, anything new that you have in store for us, um, please do let us know.
2: It's been it's been a great interview. I I'm currently I'm working on um, really expanding um, this research into Kursawi and his contemporaries, into a broader study of Islamic reformism and modernity at the beginning of the 19th century and with the ways that Kotosawe's example can really broaden our understanding of the, the more uh, prominent 18th century reformers and uh, really engage with uh, some of these questions on a more global scale. Um, I am very, uh, in light of current debates, uh, within the field of Islamic studies, I'm, I'm very firmly on the side of the uses of theory and that I think we need to expand our methodological toolbox in terms of analyzing, you know, the, the huge scope of different historical and religious phenomena that falls under Islamic studies. And I, I think that, um, there are different ways that Kutusawi's example and the theoretical approach that I tried to develop in the book can be useful for understanding modernity within the Islamic world um, in a, on a broad scale and, and ways to, to look at different forms of interaction between the Islamic scholarly tradition and the modern state and the colonial state um, in this time period around the world. So I'm interested in expanding the project in that direction. Um, and I also have my, my pet project on combining different forms of Islamic thought and Islamic philosophy, both in historical and contemporary forms, um, with different elements of radical leftist political thought, um, in a way that can sort of help us understand modernity and the current, uh, global circumstances we find ourselves in, um, but that's uh, my own little pet project, and have no idea when that will potentially appear.
1: Well, that sounds really exciting, Professor. I'm looking forward to having you on our podcast again when you know when, when these projects are out. Um, there you have it, folks. Preserving Islamic Tradition, Abu Nasr Qursawi and the Beginnings of Modern Reformism by Nathan Spanis. Get your hands on it today. Thank you, Professor, for joining us today. Thanks for having me.